Hello and welcome to Voices for the Poor. My name is Travis and I am the host of this wonderful podcast. First off, before we get started, I want to thank you, dear listener, for listening to this episode of the podcast. It means so much that you're taking the time to check this out. If you've been listening to the previous episodes, you know that this is the fifth speaker on the speaker series for Catholic social teachings held by the St. Vincent de Paul Society of St. Joseph Catholic Parish in Mishawaka. We did it. We made it to the end. Here it is. And we go out with a bang on this one. This one, we have Professor Feel, who helped found one of the Catholic workers in South Bend, Indiana. And I gotta say, all these episodes have been wonderful to listen to and hear, and I hope that you have felt the same. But this episode's got it all. We've got saints, we've got struggles, we've got dictators in South America, Catholic social teaching. It's a deep dive into what it looks like to actually be on the ground trying to work for effective change for those experiencing poverty and houselessness. And also maybe a little bit of a reminder that when you think you're done, God might have other plans. And that our work is never really finished. You know, that's another thing. This episode also really... You can see, as we've been listening to all of these episodes, they start folding into each other. They kind of become a little self-referential. So if you've listened to Sister Mercy's or Brooke Trenton's or Professor Boyd's talk or Father Chris's talk, you can start to see that there are snippets from each of those that kind of bleed into the next talk and overlap into the next talk and get referenced by other speakers that come afterwards. So that has laid a really thorough and unique foundation for us going forward to learn more about Catholic social teaching and poverty in the area. And this episode's no different. So, a little bit of background. Let's go ahead and get into it. Dr. Margaret Feel holds a joint appointment in the Department of Theology and the Center for Social Concerns at the University of Notre Dame and is a faculty fellow of the Kroc Institute for International Peace Studies and the Klaus Center for Civil and Human Rights. She is a founder and resident of the St. Peter Claver Catholic Worker Community in South Bend, Indiana. Professor Phil received her Ph.D. and Master's in Moral Theology and Christian Ethics from the University of Notre Dame. She has published numerous articles, essays, and books throughout her career, as well as spoken at several conferences and invited lecture series. Professor Phil currently resides on the Mayor of South Bend's Implementation Team on Homelessness, as well as the St. Joseph County Motels for Now Coordinating Committee. Also, one last quick programming note, the talk itself ran for about an hour, so we're going to split this episode up into two parts. The next episode will be featuring some segments of the Q&A and some more conversations from the professor, so look forward to that in the next episode. But I think that's enough from me, so let's go ahead and dive right into Professor Fields' talk. Enjoy. It's a wonderful gift to be able to be with you and to tag team with you, Sister Mercy. So hopefully we'll, uh, this is complimentary for all of you. And thanks so much um, to, to all of you uh, for your solidarity with the Catholic Worker and with Our Lady of the Road and with the motel program. Uh, I just can't tell you, it, it really, as you know, it takes uh, everyone together to express the kind of solidarity that John Paul II talked about in Solicitude Reyes Ellis. Uh, that's one of my favorite all-time quotations that you cited. So just this idea that um, solidarity with one another is really living out God's love for each of us, uh, how passionately God loves each one of God's own creations. 
And if we really understood that, we would be much closer to the reign of God. What God, I'm convinced, deeply desires is that we all return home, all of us humans together with the rest of God's creation. Um, and I'll just say that uh, what drew me to the Catholic worker in the first place was I, um, after I finished, well, before I finished my doctorate, I, I uh, got a job in Philadelphia at St. Joseph's University teaching moral theology. And this is the first time in my life I'd ever lived alone. I grew up uh, the youngest of six children, and I always had people, roommates. Um, I, after undergrad, I went to Chile for two years with the Holy Cross Associates, which, which was sort of like Jesuit Volunteer Corps. And we worked, we were there the last two years of the Pinochet regime, if you're familiar with that. So uh, working with the Catholic Church in apostolates in Santiago during those years when Pinochet was desperately trying to hang on to power. And the Catholic Church was the only institution left in civil society that, that, did, uh, that could and did speak out for human rights. Um, so I was working with the families of the detained and disappeared under the Archdiocese of Santiago, they had the Vicariate of Solidarity. And this was right around the time that Solicitudo was coming out, Solicitudo Socialis. I actually read that document first in Spanish in Santiago before I ever saw it in English. And uh, it spoke to me. What John Paul II was saying there was what, what I was experiencing in Santiago, um, this tremendous commitment on the part of the church to say yes to life uh, in a brutal regime that disappeared, um, detained, tortured, and disappeared thousands of people. We don't know the exact number, but somewhere between 3,000 and over 30,000. Um, and I was working with the families of the detained and disappeared doing documentation work. That experience led me vocationally when I came home to have all these theological questions. And I was working in a parish in Akron, Ohio for two years in Latino ministry, helping people become first-time homeowners through a land trust um, that our parish helped organize, and just generally doing pastoral accompaniment. Anyway, I, that led me to grad school. And then when I got this job, I was living in this apartment in Philadelphia, and I thought, oh my gosh, everybody has their own vacuum cleaner. I was living in a row house, you know, in an apartment, and I looked down our street, very hilly, and I looked down our street and I thought, we, we probably all have our own toasters. And I thought, I just, I know that sounds silly, but I, I just felt suffocated by the redundancy of that. And when I really was deeply convicted that we ought, we ought to be in very close relationship, sharing things in common as we were invited by Jesus and the first Christians, you know, during this Easter season, we're reading Acts and we've had a couple of uh, experiences with Acts chapter two, I think already in their readings, um, they shared everything in common. And so this vision of evangelical poverty, voluntary poverty that Sister Mercy was talking about is deeply part of the Christian tradition. And I'll just say too that it's connected to another, another facet of spiritual poverty, which is positive. Um, looking at, at the Beatitudes, Matthew uh, chapter 5, 1 to 12, the very first Beatitude is blessed are the poor in spirit. And it's not a sense of deprivation, but rather the invitation to the surrender interiorly to God's love, to create space, letting go of whatever it is that keeps us from God, to create space for God's love to fill us. 
um, that's the kind of surrender. Um, when Sister Mercy mentioned humility, that the, it's very humbling to make a commitment to voluntary poverty, uh, to evangelical poverty. And part of that is the stripping down, not only of material things, but I think even more difficult, whatever it is that we're attached to that keeps us from God. And as I say that, I think each of us has our own list of those things. You know, what is it that that is really gripping me so that I'm not interiorly free to receive God's love? And one of my um, witnesses, heroes, exemplars, is Claire of Assisi, who actually had to fight hard to get um, a principle of non-ownership for her rule, for her sisters. Um, it was actually only right on her deathbed that uh, finally uh, the Pope acceded to that. And what she wanted was that her community would not be attached to things that would keep them from God. So Philadelphia, 2001, September 11th, <laughs> I was there, and uh, 9-11 uh, affected a lot of people very directly in the Philly area who um, either had family members or were commuting back and forth to New York. And and I, I, my, I myself am from that area around New York City, a suburb of New Jersey. And uh, so I woke up the next day and I thought, I either have to join a Catholic worker community or a monastic community because I knew that I needed to be rooted in a, a, a community committed to prayer and uh, committed to nonviolence. And as a Catholic, I couldn't think of any other context where I could find those qualities, um, the commitment to nonviolence, because I knew that the response of our, of our society would be violent, um, unfortunately. And unfortunately, that has borne out. Um, how do we interrupt the vortex of violence, of the temptation to respond in kind, in a retributive sense of justice, it's only with the love of God in facing into hatred, responding to love, to hatred with love is the only way to interrupt that. And I realized that the Catholic worker, at that time there were three Catholic workers in Philadelphia, so I started spending time at those Catholic worker communities. And, but I was teaching full-time, and I, uh, I, I so admired Dorothy Day and Peter Marin, the founders of the Catholic worker, who wanted to, as they said, um, blow the dynamite of the Catholic social tradition. By that they meant retrieving it and actually helping people know it and live it. So the wonderful summation that Sister Mercy gave, we need more of that in our church so that people know the tradition and know the witnesses gone before us and can discern in our own lives, what does it look like? So I was undertaking that process um, in Philadelphia, just asking, what does this look like? And I made, I, I I wanted to um, live in the context of the Catholic worker and, and share a toaster, <laughs> you know, just a silly example. But, but I think you know what I mean. Um, sharing life and community, committed to simplicity of life so that one of the anchors of the Catholic worker is also voluntary poverty and um, also committed to prayer and nonviolence. Um, Dorothy Day was a daily communicant. She, her process of canonization is underway now. She's a servant of God. I think soon she may be declared venerable. But one of, one of the anchors of her practice was daily communion. She said, if we, if we see the Eucharist as a way to help the work of the day, we're seeing the world upside down. It's really the centerpiece of everything. Uh, 
the daily daily communion is the centerpiece of everything, and it ought to have the highest priority. So, I asked if I could live in one of these worker communities, and they said, "Sure." This this community has a, a they operate a health clinic behind a Franciscan soup kitchen, and uh, they had a they had a storage room that was like the size of that corner where this uh, the chairs are stacked, and they said, um, you could live here. And I said, perfect. That's great. That's what I want. <laughs> Pair down, live with them. And then I got an invitation to come back to Notre Dame to teach my mentor, Father Don McNeil, who started the Center for Social Concerns, was moving on to the next thing in his life. Um, careful not to say retirement, because he was very clear about that, <laughs> not retiring. So uh, I came back here, and then we... We, we started another version of the Catholic Worker. There ha- has been a worker community since the 1940s in the South Bend, Mishawaka, Granger area. Dorothy Day wrote about staying with Julian Pleasance and his family who started a Catholic Worker farm in the 1940s um, on her travels. And that farm is where um, UP Mall is now, uh, so it is no longer... And then there was another Catholic worker, the Holy Family Catholic worker, which was right across from where St. Joe High School now is, where St. Joe Hospital used to be. And that one was sort of um, winding down as we got going, and uh, we didn't want to displace the family that was living there. Um, so we started a, a, another one, St. Peter Claver Catholic worker, named for St. Peter Claver, who, whose feast day is September 9th, and who was a Jesuit who ministered to... Um, enslaved people uh, as they docked in in Colombia on their way to what is now the United States. And we chose that name because we we, uh, acquired our first house around his feast day. We opened it then uh, almost 20 years ago in 2003. Also because we were on the west side of South Bend in a kind of mixed community of uh, black and Latino families. And, And his witness spoke to what we we hope to um, to do in ministry. So I wanted to mention all of that because I, the Catholic worker for me has been um, a, a certain lens, a certain way of being in the world, a chance to put these pieces together. I think it looks differently for each person. I don't think there's one right way to do this. I think the Holy Spirit is at work in each of our hearts drawing us. And what I think our task is, um, as people of faith, is to create that interior space through surrender to God and that positive understanding of spiritual poverty um, and really listen. How is, how is the Spirit drawing us? The Catholic worker touchstones scripturally are Matthew 5 to 7, um, the Sermon on the Mount, and then Matthew 25, uh, Sister already referenced that, um, the works of mercy. When did I see you hungry and feed you naked and clothe you? Both corporal and spiritual works of mercy. As we began our community in 2003, we had people knocking on our door with empty milk jugs asking for water because their water had been turned off. And people, one guy showed up with a grocery bag. He had a big piece of meat in there, but no way to cook it. And he said, could I, could I cook this in your kitchen? <laughs> I said, why not? So... Um, and then we had people needing just to take showers. And so we started asking Hope Ministries and Broadway Christian Church and Center for the Homeless, hey, you know, it seems like there are these needs that are, are showing up on our radar. What, what's your experience? And they said, you know, 
We really need a place that would be open on the weekends, Friday, Saturday, and Sunday for breakfast, showers, and laundry, because those were days that were not being covered. Um, Hope serves breakfast um, or serves lunch and dinner uh, every day of the week, and Broadway Christian covers uh, Monday through Thursday with breakfast, showers, and laundry. So so we looked around for a place and found what is now Our Lady of the Road, an old uh, hardware store, <laughs> and uh, it needed a lot of work, and we had to add things like laundry facilities, showers, the kitchen. So that was December of 2006 that we opened Our Lady of the Road. And then, you know, it's, it's responding to the, the needs at hand, this listening for the Holy Spirit and letting that, that Spirit grab us. That's, that's uh, a big part of practicing the works of mercy, as far as I can tell, is making oneself available. And I think one of the things that we realized was that in addition to um, those needs for breakfast, showers, and laundry, housing... <laughs> has has emerged as just an absolutely crucial issue. Our houses, we have two houses of hospitality at the Worker for men and for women, and we have dinner together every night, and we, we take in guests there. We've had, we've tended to um, take in folks that are elderly, and, um, you know, for whatever reason, they're, they're just not able to live on their own. During the pandemic, when the shutdown happened, you, you all know that we've had tent encampments for many, many years, especially under bridges and stuff then. But when the tent encampment, or when the shutdown happened and weather amnesty ended, there were about 100 tents, 100 people living in tents, um, literally behind our Catholic worker house and then down the street. And um, it was a very interesting thing because at the time, my husband has been going through cancer treatment. And I, you know, as I get older, I, I wanted to pass things on to younger folks in our community. So I, I had just invited John Schomer to take over as executive director of Our Lady of the Road. And I was sort of doing that on the side. My, I mean, my full-time job is at Notre Dame. So I, I was just volunteering. And as Our Lady of the Road was really taking shape, and it was clear that we needed more help. So I had just talked to John about that. And then the tent encampment arose. And I thought, oh, maybe my idea of stepping back... Um, Maybe maybe the Holy Spirit is saying, no, now it's not the time to do that. <laughs> so we, we organized a weekly Zoom call during the pandemic and invited people, stakeholders from our neighborhood, from the tents, from local government to be part of it. You know, nobody knew what to do. Um, we asked if we could put portable toilets out um, because literally everything was shut, as, as you know, so these basic needs were going unmet, and it, it, you know there were pregnant women in the tents. Um, imagine, you know, no running water, no no sanitation whatsoever, and no plan at all for anything other than that um, during a very hot summer. So by the end of that summer, a couple of Our Lady of the Road donors, one came forward and said, "Hey." I had invited him to be part of these weekly Zoom calls, and he, he, he said, you know, by August, he said, you know, it seems like if there were a little bit of funding, maybe that would help the local officials put money into this. And I said, yeah, if we had that, we would start putting people in motel rooms, get them out of the tents, get them into these empty motels all over the region. And so he put in $30,000. And then another donor of ours, I hadn't even talked to him, but he heard about this and he said, I'm, I'm going to match that. So we had $60,000. So the third week of August in 
2020, we, we started moving about 80 people into motel rooms, and then uh, it took off from there. Um, Mike Hammond, who also teaches at Marion, was then county auditor, and he called and said, hey, you know, the county has CARES Act funding. And at that time, they actually said, we don't know what we'll do with all this funding. They had gotten $52 million, and I, one of them actually said, yeah, we don't know what to do with all this. I said, oh. I have an idea. <laughs> I can help you spend that. So that's how it all got going. And um, it, you you all know the saga from there probably, but we were now um, at a motel that with um, the mayor's mayor South Bend support we recently purchased, and we're in the process of um, securing a site for a permanent facility. And this is a housing first model, which I'll say is different from how we've run our houses. Our houses are actually like Hope Ministries, like the Center for the Homeless, are high barrier, meaning people have to be clean and sober. We um, learned that the hard way, living in community. It, uh, people we have typically are in recovery. And if someone comes in who's not further along in their journey, then literally they can upend our whole, our whole household. So the low barrier work, uh, housing first, meaning... Let's help get you housed. And like every one of us who probably has a family member dealing with addiction or mental health issues, typically, in my family at least, they've been able to remain housed. And no one has ever said to uh, one of my relatives struggling with alcoholism, oh, you know what, you really have to be sober before you can continue to be housed. No. So the housing first model um, involves working very closely with supportive services through Oakland. And we also try to connect people to recovery treatment centers um, all over the region. There's one actually here in Mishawaka. Um, there's another one in Plymouth. We have kind of a list of places and we work with Oakland. If, if somebody is interested in getting into treatment, we try to facilitate that as quickly as possible. And working with the housing authority to help people gather documentation. Often, um, Sister was mentioning the students at at St. Matthew's who are dealing with various challenges at home. And, you know, there's a lot of data around um, adverse childhood experiences. So traumatic experiences that children have. And as that happens at a very young age, it really affects their whole development, biochemically, physiologically, neurologically. And all of, all of the people we see at the worker at our lead of the road in the motel program have multiple, they call them ACEs, adverse childhood experiences, multiple ACEs. And they've never had a chance typically to process those or to heal from them. We all have various adverse childhood experiences. Um, it's when they start to accumulate, though, if you have like over 6 or 12 or 15 or 20 and all of this is happening before you even leave childhood, and you never have a chance to deal with that, it has a compounding effect on one's life. And so thinking about the various kinds of poverty at stake in our society, one of them is the lack of real attention to mental health challenges, especially after the process of deinstitutionalization happened in the late 70s and early 80s with no plan in place for where people would go. And families cannot handle people dealing with unmedicated schizophrenia, for example. I mean, it's just even if they have resources in place and they really love their their child, I, I, I know 
people my age that I've known for years whose children now are in need of housing, whom we're trying to help house through the Catholic worker, because these, these parents have done everything they could, but they're not, you know, the combination of dealing with severe mental illness and then addiction, the opioid crisis, and especially fentanyl is off the charts, as you probably are aware, in our area, um, it's a particular problem. Indiana also has, uh, South Bend has one of the highest eviction rates in the country right now after the eviction moratorium ended. So where are people going to go? The Housing Authority has worked with us to prioritize families because in the first year of the motel program, we had at one point 26 children at the motel, and it's just not a good atmosphere for them to be in. So we talked to Dr. Lambert, the director of the Housing Authority, and she has made it a priority to work with families. So if we have families coming to us, we send them to her. Working with various voucher systems, we're in desperate need for social workers. It not Again, this is a national problem, not just our area, but Oakland cannot maintain the level of staffing it needs to really meet the need at hand. And we're, we're trying to find people to work as clinicians and social workers on the motel staff to kind of fill that gap. But yeah, I would say that's a, that's a very urgent crisis um, in our, not only in, in, in South Bend and Mishawaka, but in our country. So those are some of the signs of the times. And when I think about the works of mercy and what it looks like for us on the ground, that's where we are. Do we really believe that we're connected to each other as human beings and with the rest of creation? In Laudato Si, Pope Francis talked about the fact of interconnection. And, and you know, building off of what John Paul II said in Solicitudere Socialis, do we really believe that we are created in God's image, each of us, endowed with dignity because of that, a dignity that can never be lost, right? It can be violated, but nobody can take that, that away from us. And that out of that recognition of the dignity of each and every other person and the interconnection of all of God's creation, we're called to extend ourselves in love, especially, as Sister Mercy said, especially where life is most in jeopardy, where life is, is most vulnerable. If we really believe that, I just think our, our world would look differently. It, we would live differently. Dorothy Day and Peter Martin talked about building a new society in the shell of the old. And they didn't have a vision of, you know, a grand alternative state. They rather said, no, it's, it's this, it's the work right in front of us, this small little household community. Building a new society in the shell of the old looks like taking responsibility for each other. Right? The, the Catholic worker is one of the key values is personalism, meaning placing at the center the dignity of each other person with whom we're in relationship and, and building life together, um, encouraging each person to take personal responsibility to contribute to the community. One of the kinds of justice that feeds into this vision of the common good that I think Sister Mercy um, pointed to so, so well is contributive justice. Um, in uh, 1963, John XXIII wrote an encyclical called Pacem and Terrace, and he, he laid out this panoply of a web of human rights always correlated with duties. If I claim a right to housing, then I have a, a correlative duty to ensure that every other person can claim that same right, and that these rights and duties serve the common good. 
when that happens, people can flourish. Right? The common good entails the flourishing of each and every person in society. If a person isn't able to flourish, they are not able to contribute to the common good of society. And that's actually a right and duty of each of us. We have a duty to contribute to the common good. And God has endowed each person with particular gifts to contribute. It's not a question of if, but, but how. How are people invited to contribute? When a, a child is born into a situation where they're going to incur multiple aces before they're even 10 years old, and then they never have proper accompaniment after that, I, ha I always, when I see that, I wonder, what, what is God's deepest desire for this person? What are their gifts that they, they've been given to contribute for the good of all? We might never know because they haven't been given the chance to develop that capability fully. So um, there's a phrase, Amartya Sen, a uh, Nobel laureate economist, talks about poverty as capability deprivation. And it's, it's very aligned with a vision in Catholic social thought of this understanding of um, distributive, commutative, and contributive justice serving the good of all. You know, how are goods distributed justly? How do we commutatively, commutative principle in math, <laughs> A plus B equals B plus A, how do we um, have enter into just relationships with each other, usually expressed through agreements like contracts? You know, there's an expectation that we will both honor uh, the agreement that we've made. And then contributive justice. I'll add social justice. You know, how, what do our institutions and structures look like that will help the flourishing of each person and every person that signifies the common good. The fullness of the common good is really the reign of God. We're not going to get there in this lifetime. But all of the Catholic social tradition, I think, is oriented around virtue ethics, meaning we have this ultimate telos of the reign of God, um, full communion with God at the end of time, the eschaton. Along the way, we have all these proximate goals to strive toward. And that includes these very basic needs uh, of human flourishing. None of us can survive by ourselves. There is no such thing as salvation for just one little individual person. It's, it's all of us together. Um, part of our call is to help each other toward that fullness of life in God. And if we ignore certain people and, and act as if they're not even human, the good of everyone is diminished. That, that's a diminishment of the dignity of everyone when that happens. Gosh, I feel like I've just rambled a lot. <laughs> I hope that that somehow came together and made sense. Um, but maybe I could take some time and we could have a conversation. And that concludes part one of the two-part, five-part, lecture series on Catholic social teaching. I don't know about you, but I did not think that the professor was rambling. Uh, if, if they were rambling, that was one of the most cohesive rambles I've ever heard. So again, we want to thank the professor for coming and speaking at our lecture series. It was a wonderful capstone to the event. And we want to thank you, the listener. We really appreciate you taking the time to listen to these episodes and help lay a foundation on Catholic social teaching Hopefully these can be something that you can continually come back to for inspiration or for education. 
there's a lot of encyclicals and books and saints and uh, groups referenced throughout these talks, and it can be hard to keep track of them on the first go. And I just want to do another polite reminder, it would really help the show out if you like it to go ahead and rate it on iTunes or Spotify, leave a comment, share it with friends, family members, uh, anybody who you think might be interested in it. It is a learning experience and we're all growing together through this, so the more the merrier. Be sure to come back for the next episode, that'll be the final part of the lecture series that covers a little bit more conversation from the professor post-main talk. And again, in the meantime, let's make sure that we're all continually developing ourselves to become a voice for the poor, that we look for people in need, we start to see people struggling, and we build up our agency and courage to be able to step up and give them a hand. So with that little request, I'll let y'all go. Until next time, peace.